I have a story for you. Once upon a time, well, it was way back in 1999. Some of you can't remember that far back. It was my first summer as a pastor in Montpelier, Vermont. And the big news that summer was that Fred Phelps of the Westboro Baptist Church of Topeka, Kansas, was coming to town to protest Vermont's becoming the first state in the country to offer civil unions for same-sex couples. You've probably seen pictures of Fred Phelps or his family with their horrible signs letting everyone know precisely whom God hates and who will burn in hell for eternity. So, I had just finished doing the opening prayer for the Vermont House of Representatives that morning with a prayer that touched on Phelps' hatred, and I contrasted that with Vermont's values of diversity and tolerance. And a little bit later, I was in the State House cafeteria getting coffee when a young man comes up to me. And he said that he too was disgusted by Phelps' message of hatred. But, big but, but, he said, he was concerned about my prayer message that God loves everyone. So we sat down. And he shared a little bit about his very rough childhood, a history of substance abuse, and how the love of Jesus had healed him and made him know that he was a beloved child of God. I said to him, that's a beautiful testimony. Thank you for sharing it with me. And then he went into a speech about how sinners and gay folk and folk who didn't go to his church were in mortal danger of eternal damnation and that if I kept telling people that God loves everybody, then they won't be encouraged to change their sinful ways. I thought about it for a moment and I gently countered that it was precisely by knowing deep down that one is beloved of God that allows us to change our ways. This is, this is Wesley Theology 101. Only by God's loving everybody can humanity be open to the possibility of transformation and salvation. And then the young man blurted out before he had a chance to think, but if God loves everybody, how am I supposed to know I'm special to him? I was a bit floored. And after he realized what he'd said, he was a little floored too. He got really quiet and looked at his feet and I said, gently, you might want to pray on that a little bit. 
When we read this, the story this morning of Jesus um, speaking at the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, I wonder if some of those people in Nazareth were similar to the young man that Mitch met in Montpelier in uh, feeling like they were only special if God loved them better. Um, at first, they're very excited to see their hometown boy come home doing well, and they want him to do the same miracles there that they've heard that he's doing in other places. And then Jesus starts to talk to them about how two prophets in their Jewish history, Elijah and Elisha, had been sent to bless people who were not part of the household of Israel. During a long drought, Elijah went to a foreign woman in Sidon. And Elisha went to heal Naaman the Syrian, who was a foreign enemy to Israel. He reminded the folks in Nazareth that God cares about everybody, not just the hometown crowd. Jesus was telling his hometown folk that to truly experience amazing grace, they needed to radically expand their sense of God's love, to recognize that it wasn't exclusively reserved just for them. It was for everyone. They would have to take off their make Nazareth great again caps. They would have to also expand their own love for others, including those they considered their enemies. Jesus seems to be saying, grace is not pie, folks. Just because someone not like you gets to experience God's belovedness doesn't mean that there's less for you. God's love always gets bigger. There's enough for everyone which you would think would be good news, but the mood in the crowd in Nazareth changed pretty sharply after that. They welcomed Jesus in as a homeboy done good, and in just a few words later, they're trying to hurl him off the cliff on the edge of town. They were so angry with Jesus that they wanted to kill him, or at least put him as far away as possible. And I always thought that was kind of a... Uh, severe reaction to that. But goodness, after watching American politics for the last few years, after what happened in our own capital a year ago on January 6th, we're no strangers to the same impulse that motivated that Nazareth crowd. The news, sadly, is full of folks who identify themselves as Christians but claim that God loves evangelical Christians more than Methodists or Catholics or Presbyterians or whoever, and certainly more than Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus. You get the sense that Jesus' message of inclusive love could get him thrown off a cliff again, maybe even crucified. The other reading from Scripture in the lectionary today is from Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 13, and you probably know it. Uh, some of you may be able to recite it by heart if you've been to enough weddings, where it's commonly and perhaps too commonly read. It, it is... It, 
I'm sounding cynical here, but it, it is lovely to have at weddings. But it's really important to know that Paul didn't write it for weddings. Paul is writing to a church that is having a really serious fight about, yes, how wide and inclusive is God's love. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is really doing the same thing that Jesus did in his message at Nazareth. Paul is trying to radically expand the concept of God's love. Some folk in the Corinthian church felt that God loved them better and loved their spiritual gifts better, more than God loved that other person and their obviously inferior spiritual gifts. They felt like their place in the church was more important, that they were God's favorites. Now, we read last week in chapter 12 how Paul responded by telling everyone that every member of the church, every part of the body of Christ is necessary, no matter what part it is, head and hand and eye and big toe and spleen. Then he concludes enticingly, I will show you an even more excellent way. And then he goes on to explain that more excellent way in 1 Corinthians 13. He tells them that the most important thing, the most godly thing, is, to, is not to just uh, um, live out your spiritual gifts. The most important thing is to be a living community with a radically expansive sense of God's love. The most important thing is getting oneself out of the center and getting God and God's love, God's sometimes frustratingly broad love, back into the center. That is the most excellent way. Those of us of a certain age remember with great fondness the new wave band B-52s. Anyone got on the floor to Rock Lobster on occasion? Their biggest hit was a song called Love Shack. And the lyrics go, the love shack is a little place where we can get together. Y'all have to sing back, love shack, baby. Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Okay. Uh, if we had a full house, I'm sure everyone would break into song right now. Uh, Kate Pearson, who is the, the one with the big red hair, uh, she was interviewed uh, by a Denmark radio show, and she said that the idea of Love Shack uh, was that they had in mind what she, I'll, I'll just quote her, she said, the idea of the Love Shack was just kind of a club, just like a shack out in the country where anyone could go, inclusive, you know? Be free, dance, sweat, have fun together. I like that. Now, I suspect that 1 Corinthians 13 was probably not what the band had in mind when they wrote the lyrics to Love Shack. But 
Paul's idea of love in community is precisely what allows a wildly diverse bunch of people to get together and be inclusive and experience freedom and work together and sweat together and play together and love together. God's radically inclusive love is how a community welcomes and celebrates diversity and can still hold together in the midst of diversity. That's how a community is holy for Paul. That's how a people and a place like Harvard Epworth can become a love shack, baby. In an entirely different direction. Um, This week we came across a devotion written by our colleague Steve Garnis Holmes, where he did a really interesting exercise. He said... If God is love, then let's read 1 Corinthians this way. God is patient. God is kind. God is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. God does not insist on God's own way. God is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. God bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is such a no-duh, putting God in for love, for 1 Corinthians 13, but I had never thought of it before. It makes all kinds of sense to me, and one of the reasons I like it is because sometimes 1 Corinthians 13 can feel a little squishy. It can feel like love is just about being nice to people. But when I read that with God in the place of love, there's not anything squishy about that. It becomes what Krista Tippett calls a muscular love, a robust love. It's patient and kind, and it's devoted to the truth, and it's unending and disciplined and unyielding. It's the core of who God is in the Bible. So I say I'm a God follower. I say I follow Jesus, which means I intend to live in the way Jesus teaches, which means I intend to put the Bible into practice in my own life. And so another exercise we thought of this week is, what if I put my name in for love instead of God? And I tested it out, and I couldn't get past Barb is patient. I couldn't even get to Barbara's kind. And don't, don't ask me to not do the not irritable or arrogant or rude part. Sometimes I'm anything but. And if I sit down and think about myself on a really, really good day, I could maybe get three lines in or maybe four. But it's rare. And it makes me realize how hard it is to live this way. It's a tough exercise. It is a tough exercise. <laughs> and, and it, makes, it makes me ask, is, is, is this really what Jesus is asking of us? And the answer is yes. This is what Jesus asks of us. 
to love like he loves. Jesus isn't asking us to be squishy about our love. And he's certainly not asking us to be victimized or to be a love doormat that lets someone walk all over us. Jesus is calling us to a muscular love, a wise love, a love that breaks through walls of division and social niceties, a love that thrives on justice and mercy, a love that doesn't give up, and also a love that is nobody's fool, a love that is fierce and tender both. It's a big job, this kind of love, a really big job. And I've noticed that when I try to commit myself to this, something happens inside me. I get centered or re-centered usually because if I'm attending to this verse, I've probably gotten off center one way or the other. Trying to live into 1 Corinthians 13 reminds me who I am. I'm a person who's committed to loving. And whose I am, I belong to God. I am beloved of God even when I don't love very well. And when I remember who I am and whose I am, my love gets stronger and more tender both. I'm not as easily knocked off my center by someone that I have a disagreement with. When I have a bedrock conviction that I'm beloved by God, and, somewhat frustratingly, so is the person I'm arguing with, I get better at discerning what is about me and what is really about them. I get better at what is this person's issue and what are the things in myself that I need to work on. As I stay centered in who I am, my heart opens to those I might normally turn from. I start to see what's going on in their lives, maybe. And I hear and receive their comments differently because I'm coming from a place of compassion and grace. And most of all, when I read 1 Corinthians 13, and especially when I put God in for love, and I'm going to start doing that more, I'm reminded that I can only do this, I can only approximate doing this, when I let God work through me. This isn't something I'm going to manage on my own power. I only do this with and through God. When we look back on that scene in Nazareth, where Jesus challenges the crowd's concept the narrow, their narrow concept of God's love. And they rose up as one to throw him off a cliff. It says he walked through the crowd and went on his way. I'm not sure how to read that in my mind's eye, whether it's separated like the Red Sea, or he just kind of bulldoze through. However it went, I believe that Jesus could do that because he knew who he was and whose he was. 
He knew that God's love was big enough to include everyone, including that angry crowd. He knew himself enough to know that their limited concept of God's love did not have to hold him back, even though he was their people. As he walked through them and then away from them, I know he didn't do that spitefully. I suspect he was sad for them, disappointed perhaps, but he was also clear. This was their issue, not his. He had to be about his calling, which was sharing God's great love a God who is patient and kind, not arrogant or rude, a God who rejoices in the truth, a God who bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The scripture says that Jesus walked through the crowd and went on his way. And that way was a way of love that's turned the world upside down. Amen. Thank you.